Hi, and welcome to the Days Gone podcast. I'm Claire Weaver, a screenwriter, author, and Days Gone fan, and this podcast is a place to discuss the game in all its glory, share my opinions, both popular and unpopular, and listen to me fangirl over one of the best games ever made. There will be spoilers ahead, so continue at your own risk. Welcome to The Freak Show. Before we get started, I have the usual reminders. Weekdays at 8 a.m. Mountain Time, you can watch me live stream my Days Gone playthrough. I take on hordes, talk shit about rippers, and lay waste to ambush camps all before I've had my morning cup of coffee. You can find me on my YouTube channel, 8-Bit Terror. You can get your Days Gone-inspired merchandise at daysgonepodcast.threadless.com. There's tees, tanks, stickers, pins, notebooks, mugs, art prints, and more, and it all ships internationally so you can rep your love of the game all around the world. Okay, today's episode is a deep dive into the world of the Rippers and their cult leader, Carlos, aka Jesse Williamson. Joining me today is CJ, an avid video game fan who spends his spare time writing screenplays for fan film adaptations of his favorite horror movies. Welcome, CJ. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Claire. Thank you for having me. How are you today? Oh, I'm good. Thank you for asking. Uh, and thank you for coming on the show. I'm excited to talk to you about the Rippers, about Carlos, and, and you have some interesting theories about Schizo as well. You know, I love to talk about Schizo. Yep, that's Schizo for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get started. Let's um, let's just talk a little bit about Days Gone for a minute. How many times have you played Days Gone, and how did you discover it? As to how many times I've played it, I can honestly say I have absolutely no idea. I have played that game so many times that it's unquestionably one of my favorites right up there with The Last of Us. When it comes to getting into it, I remember when it was first coming out, I was always seeing all these different trailers, and I thought, well, that looks interesting. But for the most part, the stuff I was seeing, it was just him fighting freakers. So I thought, well, I'm not sure. I'll have to keep my eye on this. And then when I found out Sam Witwer was in it, having seen him in the Force and the Leash games, I thought, okay, well, there's a big name. And then mm -hmm. eventually when it came out, it was just one of those games I knew I had to have it. So you got it at launch? Um, About that time. It might have been a couple months after, but I know I definitely got it the year it came out. Do you play on PC or PlayStation? PS4. I, I do have an Xbox 360, but I never really used it. I've always been a PlayStation guy. Hey, me too. <laughs> so what makes Days Gone so special in your opinion? Well, one of the reasons I love The Last of Us so much is the storytelling and the characters, and it has pretty good gameplay, regardless which one you're playing. And with Days Gone, something I love so much about that is, yeah, when you play it, the story will be the same all the time, but not, because you can get a mission that comes up that's one of the main missions, but then you have a side mission come up with, say, going to talk to Sarah, and then you have Copeland calling saying, hey, Deke, you out there? So then you have a couple different ways of playing it. So it's like I always tell my friends, even if it's not really something that you're interested in, I still recommend giving it a chance because you never know. You can end up falling in love with it. I mean, I definitely did. Mm -hmm. And one of the great things about it is having that player choice. It's not just, okay, what gun am I going to use for this one? It's okay, I got these items and I can go do this mission, but am I ready for it? 
maybe I should go do something else. That that's why I love that game so much. Yeah, yeah, the freedom to play it your way, and you can almost role play it. You know, like what would Deacon do? How would someone who has military training handle this mission? Or you know, you can think how would someone who has rage issues handle this mission? You can kind of choose to do a number of different things. And, you know, we've seen with Spornicus Rex doing his No Shots Fired on the hordes, Iron Butte horde, Sawmill horde, you know, No Shots Fired, like not using guns at all. You can completely ignore them. There's just so much versatility in Days Gone. And of course, the story is just incredible, which is what keeps us coming back time and time again. I know one of the funny things about fast travel and that is I absolutely refuse to use it. I, I probably only did my first playthrough and then I, I from driving around I got to know the area so well that mm -hmm. from that point on it was just driving. Yeah, I don't use fast travel either. There's no point. The world is so beautiful. Why would you want to take yourself out of it for even for a second? Exactly. That's what I always say too. But the funny thing about the fast travel is, is despite my fact of not using it in that, when I play Jedi Fallen Order, it's sometimes I think, well, why can't I just fast travel from one point to the next? That's one game where I kind of wish you could, because sometimes trying to traverse back through it can be a pain. Whereas like days gone, you just want to drive. Yeah, I agree. I I mentioned in the intro that you write fan films. Have you ever written one for Days Gone? Days Gone, I haven't. The only one I ever attempted that for was I tried doing a sequel to the Metal Gear Solid spinoff. It was um, Metal Gear Rising Revengeance. I tried mm -hmm. doing one to that, but I was having a bit of difficulty trying to go from like writing short stories back in high school and doing screenplays for films. Because you really have to keep in mind about player choice and well, what's going to happen here. So I actually didn't finish that one. But over the past year or so, I've really been thinking, like, what would a day has gone to be? And especially hearing you and Rex and other people talk about it on the live streams, it's definitely something to always wonder about. And mm. Sam, what we're speaking about it, too. And yeah. what could be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely so much set up in the story uh, to imply what would happen in a sequel. Characters we might meet. And I think John Garvin has sort of mentioned a few times uh, in interviews that it was supposed to be part of a trilogy, that there were multiple games planned, the story, you know, they had more planned out. Um, for example, Jack, the president of the MC, was supposed to play a role. Uh, so they were going to bring him into the story. So it's just kind of cool and like Lisa's set up. And, uh, you know, it was like the new uh, version of Deacon, I guess, by the end of the game. Like there's so much that you have to build off of if you were making a sequel. The only thing that would really concern me is if they did A Days Gone 2 and they decided, okay, let's have Deacon in it and Sarah and Boozer, but we're going to focus on Lisa. Although I think that's a good idea. I've been playing through the Telltale Walking Dead series again, and I know a lot of people really don't like the third season because Clementine becomes a secondary character. And I completely understand that, but at the same time, I enjoy it because it makes me think of Metal Gear Solid 2, how when I was a kid, I was one of those people who was upset because I thought, oh wait, so I'm not playing as the main character, 
I'm playing as somebody else. I thought, well, why would you want to play as somebody else? But then because you are, it actually gives you the advantage to see them from a different perspective that you may have not seen them in before, or mm-hmm. you may have seen them after the fact. That's something I always looked at with Clementine in The Walking Dead and the character of Snake in Metal Gear. It's just a different perspective on it, you know? Yeah. All right, let's get on to our main topic, the Rippers. I wanted to do this episode for a long time because I think the Ripper theology is fascinating. Um, So let's start with that. What do the Rippers believe? That's something from the first time I played it, I wasn't really sure for a long time because I thought, really, what is their end game? What are they trying to accomplish here? But then when you think about it, they say like Schizo included even says about how they want to forget everything that came before and they want to try and be more like the freakers. Because I guess in their mind, if they forget about everything that happened before, it won't affect them as much now. And that's something you see when Deacon and Schizo go into their territory. They see them doing this dance around the fire and that they see them walking like a horde. Yeah, they definitely want to emulate the freaks. Cut away their past, leave your name behind, forget who you were, and as Lisa puts it, forget who you've lost, which is a big part for her, her appeal, that the Ripper's appeal, because she has obviously encountered a lot of loss. They cut themselves and they have the, you know, the scars and they're obviously really big into like the symbology of, I don't even know, of like the, the, the nests that they create. You know, they have like the sticks and everything that they, in a way, are sort of emulating the freaking nests. But it seems like the symbology is really important to them, which is weird because the freaks don't really have a symbology. You know, it's just, there are patterns, there's the, the sticks, the nests, the, the, the shit and the dirt and filth. But the freaks don't have, just innately, don't have any kind of structured theology or symbology. So it's weird that as humans, as, you know, uninfected, Carlos and the freaks, they still need something. It's like, forget who you were, forget your name, forget anything that has meaning, but now ascribe meaning to these symbols. That's definitely one of the issues where as much as they try to be like the Freakers, they can only go so far because eventually you're you're going to have to realize that you're always going to have that humanity in you. And they definitely have one of those mentalities where you're either against us or you're with us. Mm. And I feel like that's something that plays into the scene where when Deacon and I almost said Boozer, (laughs) when Deacon and Schizo go into their territory, they find that woman who they were sacrificing to the Freakers. So I'm of the belief that she didn't want to join them. So they just said, okay, well, here's what we're going to do instead. Yeah, it's mentioned quite a few times throughout that they torture people who don't want to join them. It kind of undermines everything that they're trying to do if you're forcing people to join you're not going to end up with the same cult belief. You're watering down your members by, you know, forcing them to to join you under duress. Uh, so it's it's very much a flawed system. I get the impression that Carlos and and you know probably they have other leaders within the 
the hierarchy, although we don't get to see that, but they must have, uh, you know, whoever's running each uh, little ambush camp that they they have. You know, there's there's got to be some sort of hierarchy. I don't get the impression that any of them are particularly smart. No, it definitely doesn't see that seem that way. And especially when you compare them to the Marauders. The Marauders aren't the brightest either, but because of what the uh, Rippers, what they're huffing and stuff, that's definitely going to be messing with them. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what do you think they're snorting? Do you think it's Freaker nest residue or do you think it's it's mentioned at one point in the game that it might be like, maybe it's PCP or I think, no, actually, correction, Deacon says that he has seen people on PCP in the past and they are acting, the Rippers are acting in the same way as those people he's seen on PCP. So it's not saying that they're on PCP, but he's saying they're whacked out like people who are on PCP might act. It could be what Deacon said, but it maybe it could be the Fricker Nast residue too. They could have found a way to put them together perhaps. I think it makes sense that it's the nest residue because they're trying to be like the freaks. They're almost trying to maybe infect themselves. If they sniff enough of it, it will have that same effect as if they are infected. And if you use the nest residue on, say, a marauder, they do end up acting a lot like how the uh, rippers do because of how they just get so in a frenzy and they just want to kill everything in sight. That's something that the Rippers don't really need for you to shoot them with. Because the, they're just like, yeah, I'm just going to do that anyway. <laughs> I think, though, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you shoot a Ripper with the Residue Bolt, they will still act like the Marauders act and will turn on their own people. Yeah, they definitely do. I have seen that by trying it out just to see what would happen. But when people say don't use one of them on the Breakers... Yeah, I'd definitely take their advice on that one. Why? What happens if you use it on a breaker? And normally, in what I've seen, I don't know if it happens the same for everybody. Maybe it was just something that happened in the game. But I know normally, if I try it, which I only ever tried it once or twice, I shot one. And he just kind of turned around and looked at me and came charging at me. And I thought, well, <laughs> you know what? That's not what I had in mind. Okay. <laughs> I do know that if you shoot someone with a residue bolt and they see you, they'll still attack you first. You have to kind of break line of sight, but I don't know. I haven't tested it out in the breakers. I'd also like to know what happens with the reachers, because I know with the screamers, if you would, if you shoot one of those with the residue bolt, they will still scream, but then the freaks that are drawn in will attack the screamer, not you, which I think is really fucking cool. That's interesting. I actually didn't know that about the Screamers. Yeah, yeah. I don't use the residue bolts often enough. I always forget about the crossbow. I'm like a sniper rifle, you know, diehard. Oh, my MG-55. I love my MG. But, uh, but yeah, I need to test out the, the nest residue, I think, more often. Because it's fucking cool. It's a really cool uh, weapon to have in the game. I know my first couple playthroughs, I never really used the crossbow much because I was always afraid that... Okay, what if I'm around the corner and there's going to be a horde there? I really want to go up against it with a shotgun, a pistol, and a crossbow. And I think, well, if I have the MG55 or MG45, whatever I have, I'll be safe. But as it went on, the uh, Drifted Crossbow has pretty much been my main weapon for most of the game. At least until 
after I'm leaving Lost Lake, that's when I usually switch over to something else for a bit. But I know with the Cryer Nest, I always want to have that bow around. Right, right. It is definitely more efficient to use the incendiary bolts on the Cryer Nest. Personally, I, I still use Molotovs um, just because I know that I can get at least two, if not three or four of the nests on each tree with one Molotov. And I know you can get, with one kerosene, you get three incendiary bolts versus one kerosene gets you one Molotov. So I know it's it's definitely more efficient. And you can still, if you shoot the bolt in the right place, you can still get two nests at a time. I don't think you can get more than two with one bolt. I think it depends on if they're close enough. If you aim more toward the center, you can sometimes get them. I know part of why I switched over to the crossbow instead of the Molotovs was because I remember I remember Rex was saying in one of his videos about where you can find a bunch of kerosene. And then I think it was in one of Borislav's where he was talking about the kerosene and how much you need for the bolts and the Molotovs. I know Rex definitely talked about that at one point. Yeah, those are the boys that have put in a lot of thought into the mechanics of the game and being efficient with your resources. I just, you know, my thing is the story, and I love the idea of just throwing an, a, a fucking Molotov right at a telephone pole and setting. Like I said, you can set like three or four of them on fire. If you, if you get it precisely in the middle between two nests, you'll get both nests. If you're lucky, it will drip down onto the ones below it. So always start at the top and work down because you might get the ones below where you're shooting, where you're aiming. But yeah, you can. I've had four. Four with one Molotov before. I know I accidentally lit up one of them with one of the Napalm Molotovs once because I did try selecting the regular Molotovs. Oh, and it did the weapon wheel switch on you? Yep. I ended up using the Napalm one. And though it took them all out, I thought, okay, I guess even though that's not what I had planned, it still worked out. So I just, I just kind of went with it. That's really cool. So with one napalm molotov, you got all of the nests on that pole or on that tree? Yeah, I believe there was about four of them, and it somehow managed to get all of them at once. Oh, I haven't tried cool. it since. I'm going to try that out, definitely. That sounds really cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if it was luck on that one or what happened, because I've never actually tried it. It was just one of those dumb luck moments. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the Rippers. So we encounter the Rippers right from the beginning of the game. Outside of the Freaks, they're the major enemy that you're pitted against in the northern regions. Of course, the first encounter being when Boozer gets attacked. And then there are a lot of camp jobs to clear the Rippers from moving into the northern regions. All of this is kind of setting the scene, telling us about this major threat to the world and giving us a focus beyond just fighting Freaks. Yeah, that's one thing. Um, as soon as you go to Copeland's camp, immediately he says about, yeah, so I've had people get attacked by the Rippers. You wouldn't happen to know anything about that, would you? And then he happens to say about how they're looking for a pair of bikers. And then as soon as you go into Tucker's camp, you immediately hear her and you hear Aokai talking about their people seeing them and being attacked. It's mm pretty much a trickle effect of how no matter where Deacon goes, he keeps hearing about rippers. Right, right. And I like that bit when you're at Tucker's camp uh, because it's 
it shows the tension between the two leaders. You know, you have uh, Ada Tucker obviously being the main leader, and then Alki, who is her right hand man. And there's tension between them in part because of the Rippers. There's also tension between them about the dig site. But he reports to her saying, oh, there's a, you know, Rippers were spotted moving in. And she says, which direction were they going? Were they going north? Were they going east? Were, you know, were they coming towards us? And he responds with like, I can't be in two places at once. It's not my job to know. I can't be running your dig site and be out there finding out information about the Rippers. Like, you're expecting too much of me. And I love the idea that that these camps are at breaking point or reaching breaking point and the Rippers is just another thing piling on them that might push them over the brink. And that's one of the things that when you get to Lost Lake, you see about how they're not really going after that camp, but more so they're going after Tuckers and Copelands because they surely know that he's been doing runs for them. And there's a good possibility because they haven't seen Deacon around in the Lost Lake territory. Right, because he hasn't been there for a year because he got kicked out. Exactly. They, they probably figure, you know what? Well, since he's not down here, we're just going to focus up top. And I think that's part of why Iron Mike became so to the fact of, well, I don't think they're going to attack us because why, why would they? Right. But then at the same time, Deacon's not around there. He's up north. So you think that the Rippers invading Belknap and then Cascades is because they are looking for Deacon? That's what I'm definitely of the belief of, because they, they're they going after Copeland and Tucker because they know he's doing trades for them and bounty missions. That's a really good theory. Um, it definitely tracks. They're also after Lisa. And I want to talk a lot about Lisa because the main story missions are focused on her. You have the camp jobs that are focused more on the Rippers for Belknap and uh, Cascades. But the main story missions are the ones uh, that focus on Lisa and her involvement with the Rippers. So you can be ignoring the camp jobs and still get that focus on the Rippers, that, that story information about the Rippers. So when the first time we meet her is when Tuck sends us to, <laughs> to basically kidnap her from Marion Forks. And the Rippers are there looking for her as well. Why do you think they've targeted her? I don't think it's really along the lines of them just trying to find her to say, oh, yeah, she must have some connection to Tucker. Because even though we know that, there's no way they could have known. So I feel like them being there going after her was maybe they just saw her and thought, okay, well, we're going to try to get this person to join us. And then when Deacon shows up and he starts taking them out, I always thought maybe one or two of them got away and then they went back and told Carlos about it. So that's when things started to change. And they eventually, when they do end up taking her later, I know a lot of people think, well, maybe it's just a coincidence, but I think, yeah, but it's Lisa, though. If it was anybody else, you could say it was a coincidence, but the one they take her and then Deacon, who they know Carlos and thereafter themselves, is the one who took her. I always thought there was a really good possibility there that because of that, they're going to try to use her to get to him. Right. I mean, that makes sense that they see... Deacon is the one who's getting this girl. 
Deacon is the one who, you know, goes to all the effort to fight through all the freaks and all the rippers, you know, help this girl, air quotes help, but, you know, rescue her or whatever. So it makes sense that if they want to draw out Deacon, kidnap the girl. He rescued her once. He'll come rescue her again. And of course it works. Uh, or sort of. He does come and re- but he kills everyone. Yeah, because no sooner do they take her when Tucker says about it, Deacon even says, well, I know what they're capable of, so I'm not going to wait. He immediately rushes in. And then when he's trying to get her out, there you have all these rippers coming after him trying to stop him. Unfortunately for them, though, it didn't really work in their favor. Yeah, yeah. But of course, their plan is that it, it would. And they would presumably capture Deacon and take him to Carlos. This is, goes back to the Rippers not being super smart, because obviously Carlos wants Boozer and Deacon alive, and he wants to be the one that burns them. And uh, in the early scene where Boozer gets attacked, they burn off his tattoo. And it's like, I'm pretty sure Carlos didn't say, you get to burn off his tattoo. I'm pretty sure Carlos wanted Boozer himself and like wanted to do that himself. That's definitely something they probably didn't think of because like we talked about, they're not the brightest. So the ones that were doing that, they probably thought, well, you know what? Maybe Carlos should be cool with it because I showed, hey, I'm, uh, I'm willing to do it as much as you are. So that could be one of those things where maybe they actually had this idea whether it was actually a good one or not, that they could get in his good graces. But then again, that's really something you have to look at from a certain point of view. There's also the idea that maybe just Carlos giving his sermons, I imagine he he probably, I mean, you have his recordings all around the world, those little towers with his recorded voice. He's obviously someone who likes to give sermons. Every cult leader likes to give sermons. So I imagine the whole line of tattoos are the, you know, uh, symbols of the lost, symbols of a dead man. That's probably ca- something Carlos has said about himself. Like, not explicitly, he's probably said those words. His meaning behind the words is, I used to have this tattoo on my back. It was burned away. That man is dead. That man was lost. I am now found. I am no longer Jesse. I am now Carlos. The tattoo symbolized my dead life. And the burn scar on my back symbolizes my new life. So I imagine he's done some sort of, you know, sermon or whatever to his drugged up bunch of fucking cultists. And they've misunderstood it and been like, oh, we need to capture people with tattoos and burn off their tattoos. Because their tattoos are symbolizing that they are dead and they are lost. And by burning their tattoos off, we will bring them into our cult, into being found. Yeah, that's... Definitely a possibility. I know with the Rippers, I don't know if anybody else has really made this connection, but I always thought about the Seraphites in The Last of Us Part 2, how they had this woman that they all looked up to. And because of the stuff that they say about how she won't guide us, that always makes me think of the Rippers too, because they have a similar doctrine with that, where they definitely have this one mind belief. All right, so let's talk about the Lost Lake section of the games. This is the biggest, the most ripper-intensive section. Um, It begins with Lisa. Again, you dropped her off at Lost Lake. You, you know, go get Boozer, bring Boozer to Lost Lake. You're sneaking in. And if you listen to the 
dialogue as you're sneaking in, you have them talking about, you know, that annoying new girl who cries all the time. And then shortly after you find out that she, air quotes, ran away on a supply run. Uh, And I say air quotes because we don't know if Schizo just was annoyed with her and just fucking got rid of her. But it seems that she willingly maybe joined the Rippers that in her previous kidnappings, part of their indoctrination, part of their their theology got in her mind. Because we find that note when we go looking for her, we find a, 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 like a poem or whatever that she wrote, a, you know, sort of teenage scribblings in her journal saying that she wants to forget. I want to forget. I want to forget. I want to forget, I think is what it says over and over again. So it's like she she did maybe run away or maybe was like left behind, uh, but she sought out the Rippers. She wants to join them, which I always thought was really interesting that their brainwashing or whatever is kind of appealing to her, their theology is appealing to her and the brainwashing is starting to work. And between what happened with Tucker and how things went there and the fact that Lisa did find out about, well, my family isn't here, it, that definitely plays into the whole thing of her wanting to forget about everything that came before it. Right. The loss, the betrayal, you know, Deacon said, oh yeah, maybe your mom's at the camp. Oh no, sorry kid, you should have known that she wasn't going to be here. That's a huge fucking betrayal. That was that was really cruel of Deacon. Exactly, and that's like how you said about with Schizo probably just not even caring that she took off. That definitely could play into it because we do see when Boozer takes off, Deacon says, what, you didn't even try to stop him? He's like, no, why would I? He said, if he wants to go, then let him go. And that, that could be the same thing with her, where he felt like his other people did, that she was just being a problem. So he thought, okay, well, just let her go. And then whatever happens, happens. Yeah, problem solved. My people aren't pissed off. And, you know, she gets what she wants. If she wants to fuck off, then let her. <laughs> Typical schizo. Um, so speaking of schizo, the story very much builds up this idea that he wants a war with the Rippers. You know, Iron Mike accuses him of that. I think Ricky accuses him of that. Deacon definitely sees it that way, that Schizo is is pushing to antagonize the Rippers and try to make something happen between Lost Lake and the Rippers. Why? What does he have to gain? Well, with that one, I know if he was to get rid of Deacon and Boozer on top of it, that would definitely get rid of the whole thing of, well, they're invading my turf and now Iron Mike's not trusting me as much. So if he was to get rid of them, that would definitely benefit him. Mm -hmm. But when Ricky says that he wants a war with them, I always question, okay, it might seem that way, but does he? Because we know how much of a coward he can be. It's like one of the scenes with him that really shows that is when they're having that standoff and Mike finds out about what he did. If you notice, Schizo, even though he has his gun on the other guys, he's practically hiding behind Mike because he thinks, well, okay, if they're going to start shooting, they're going to shoot him first and not me, and I could potentially get away. (laughs) He's also picking a side, and I maintain that I don't think Schizo does want a war with the Rippers. I think he's trying to protect Lost Lake. And I think protecting Lost Lake involves getting Iron Mike to see that the Rippers are a big threat. So I don't think he necessarily wants a war with them. I think if it were up to Schizo, he would probably find some way to take out the Rippers before they saw it coming. 
So it's like, look, these guys are going to come for us. If it's not today, it's tomorrow. If it's not tomorrow, it's the day after. We need to hit them now before they hit us, which of course is echoing Iron Mike's past and what happened at Sherman's camp, which is exactly why Iron Mike does not want to do that plan. He is trying to choose a different path. And that just makes Schizo nervous because he doesn't want the Rippers to get the jump on them. He's not the kind of guy that lets people get the jump on him. He's the kind of guy who strikes first. You find his shit list. You see the machinations of what he's been doing, taking people out, using other people to take people out. Every situation is a win-win for Schizo. You know, when he sends Deacon into Iron Butte to get the antibiotics, Deacon comes back with antibiotics. Yay, that's a win for Lost Lake. Cool, we have medicine. Deacon doesn't come back. Yay, that's a win for Lost Lake. Schizo's gotten rid of this problem child, this uh, you know guy who's stirring up all this trouble. It's a win-win. Everything Schizo does is a win-win, except for he can't seem to get Iron Mike on side and to see that there's a problem, a big problem that needs to be tackled. So that's when he starts taking things into his own hands. And that's like how we talked about earlier with the Rippers going after the Northern Territories of Tuckers and Copelands. Um, the Wast Lake didn't really have to worry about much of anything because their truce was holding because Deacon and Boozer weren't there. But I think that's the point where Schizo realizes, okay, wait a minute. Now they're here and I'm hearing stuff about they want the two biker boys. So definitely they're going to be coming after us at some point. So now when Iron Mike died, he was crying wolf this whole time, which I suppose he was to a degree. I think Schizo, he didn't really want to start a war, but he wanted to incite something that will make Iron Mike think, you know what, maybe he's right after all. And that's why Schizo even says, you need to understand, this isn't what I was trying to accomplish, he says to him. He says, this was never meant to happen. He didn't think that they were going to go and attack the camp, but that's what happened because they went back on their word and went against him. And they also, you know, because Deacon escapes. That was, ne that was never part of the plan. That was the one thing he didn't count on was Deacon escaping. It was like, if Deacon died as they were sneaking into Iron Butte, cool, problem solved. I can deliver Deke's body to Carlos. Carlos will leave Lost Lake alone. Deacon's dead, no longer a problem. Awesome. If Deacon gets trapped in the uh, building where you have all the newts, cool. I trapped him. I can deliver him to Carlos. Carlos can go figure out the newts, whatever. Oh, Deacon made it through that. Okay, well, now I'll just knock him out, deliver him unconscious to Carlos. Awesome. I don't know if Schizo really knows why Carlos wants Deacon. He probably doesn't think too much about it. I don't know if you could guess, you know, with the limited information that Schizo has. I know he asks Deacon, what do the Rippers want with you? And Deacon, I forget exactly what he says, but he's like, I don't know and I don't care. Carlos can go fuck himself or whatever. So I don't know how much information Schizo has about why and what exactly is going to happen, but I assume that Schizo just presumes Carlos wants Deacon and Boozer dead because they, they've killed a lot of Rippers or something like that. So I don't think he puts too much thought into, or I don't think he puts any thought into what might happen if Deacon escapes or if the Rippers, if Carlos isn't happy. Yeah, I think uh, when they're in the mine and Schizo's talking to Deacon saying, well, why do you think they want you and Boozer? 
it's kind of like he's trying to weigh, well, how much do they want him? How valuable are you? Exactly. Because I don't think Carlos would trust Schizo enough. I don't know why anybody would trust Schizo, but Iron Mike did for whatever reason. Um, I don't think Carlos trusted him enough to tell him. He probably just said, hey, I want these two. You have them. If you bring them to me, we got a deal. And Schizo just said, you know what? I don't like those guys either, so let's do it. <laughs> yeah, again, it's a win-win. It's like, oh, cool. I get to deliver, I get to get rid of Deacon and Boozer. I might might be slightly unhappy, but hey, I've made a deal that will stand for a long time. Like the Rippers will have no reason to come into Lost Lake, ever. Because the one thing they want, we gave it to them. And I, I think I pointed out on one of Rex's previous streams with Days Gone, a lot of people don't feel this way, but when they're going to get the deck cord, First, you have a bunch of those wolves coming after him, and he could say, hey, we got all these wolves down here, and Skills says, yeah, 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 I'm getting there, and he doesn't help them. Then with the newts, I never thought he just couldn't hold on to that door. Oh, no. He's totally letting Deacon have an opportunity to die. Yeah, that would be the second time, because he's just, oh, hey, I can't hold it, and drops it. As soon as he gets on the other side, that's awfully suspicious. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, no, sorry, bro. Did I lock you in that room with all those newts, and you're probably going to die? Oh, shucks. Sorry about that. Yeah, and I, I've <laughs> seen people say, well, he seems kind of concerned when he's on the outside. Maybe he's just afraid of the newts. That could be part of it, but I always thought when he's going, Deke, Deke. Talk to me, brother. I always thought that was like him saying, okay, is he dead? Mm -hmm. No, nah, I still hear something going on there. He's still alive. And then when Deacon opens the door, he's, he just kind of looks at him like, okay, well, that one didn't work. And then mm -hmm. when Deacon's thanking him for actually having his back, he even tells him, just don't. Just don't do that. Because he knows that, okay, well, my plan A my plan B, neither one of them worked. So now here's what I got to do. And mm -hmm. I have to give them up. Yeah. Yeah. I think that he was genuinely hoping that Deacon might, air quotes, accidentally die. He can deliver a dead body to Carlos. And then he doesn't mention that. When he gets back to Lost Lake, he was like, yeah, we went to do uh, whatever thing to get the deck cord or whatever. Uh, and Deacon died. That's it. That's all he mentions. You know, it was it was newts or it was wolves or it was whatever. We ran into some rippers. You don't mention, oh, yeah, and I'd made a deal and delivered his dead body to them. Don't mention that. And that goes back to when Iron Mike said to Deacon about when they're going into the mine. He said, hey, I just want to make sure that he's not going to have some kind of accident in there. Mm -hmm. And Deacon says, what, what kind of guy do you think I am? Meanwhile, Skidjo is the kind of guy who's does exactly what Iron Mike warned Deacon about. And he's like, okay, well, if he has a so-called accident, I didn't actually do it. Right. I mean, it, when you're in the mine and there's that dodgy little tunnel that you have to crawl through, Schizo's like, oh, you go first. You're the one with the flashlight. It's like, please take the lead and hopefully die. And then I can go back to Lost Lake and say, oh, yeah, that mine is really dangerous. We already lost Torres and Evans. And now we lost St. John. Guess we shouldn't go back there again. And I could see Mike, if Schizo would have had the accident, I feel like Mike would have really gone off on Deacon and said, see, this is exactly why right. we shouldn't have let you back. 
But if Schizo did it, and Deacon was the one who quote-unquote had an accident, I'm not entirely sure Mike would have been as hard on him, because he probably would have thought, okay, well, you two had your issues, but Schizo, you've been here this whole time, whereas Deacon and I have had our issues, so I guess I'll let this one slide. Iron Mike definitely recognizes that Schizo does have Lost Lake's interest at heart. He may not like his methods, but I think Mike recognizes that he needs that balance. He needs someone to be a no man, not a yes man. You need someone to challenge your ideas. Iron Mike is trying to do a very idealistic thing. Schizo is very much a realist. It's a good balance. I think it works, and I think Iron Mike recognizes that it works. So yes, Schizo has proven himself to be a loyal and trustworthy member of Lost Lake versus Deacon, who has absolutely not. And it it makes me think of, there's a character in the Mass Effect 2 game, I can't think of his name right now, but he's a warden of this jail that's out in space. And you can actually call him out on the way he goes about things. And he says, okay, so don't question my motives. I know something along the lines of that. He says, you might question my way of going about things, but don't question my motives. This is what mm. he said. And that, that makes me think of Schizo. He doesn't really say that outright, but he always kind of hints to Deacon, like, listen, I know you don't like me. You hate me. and probably want to see me dead, which he definitely does. But at the end of the day, like, Schizo, even though he can be a really bad person, as we saw, I always did get the feeling that maybe, just maybe, he actually did have their best interests at heart. Yeah, his motives are uh, honorable. His methods are totally dishonorable. His methods are terrible. But his motive, protect Lost Lake, is honorable. And that is why I maintain that he's one of the most important characters, one of the best characters in the game, just purely from a storytelling point of view, because that's fucking interesting. You don't want a one-dimensional villain who is just mustache twirling and just wants to do evil. That's fucking boring. That's obvious, and you see that coming. What makes a good story is having a character that, that makes you think, that challenges your protagonist, uh, you know, that challenges the themes of the game, that challenges our worldview. Schizo does all of that. Absolutely. That Jason Spizak, just like Sam Wentworth said, um, he did such a really good job where certain times you look at Schizo and think, wow, man, you suck. But then he goes and does something else and you think, but does he? He, he constantly has you guessing what his true motives are. Because there's times where we see that he's definitely doing things for the camp. But then there's times where we think, okay, well, he's just being selfish because he wants to get rid of Deacon and Boozer because he doesn't like them. But when it comes down to it, though, he even though he goes behind Mike's back and he tries getting Deacon on his side, he, he tries to prevent having to betray him. Let's get into Carlos and the reveal of who Carlos really is, uh, Jesse Williamson. So what do we know about Jesse's backstory? I remember Rex was talking about it before, about how you can find those collectibles out in the world. And 
a lot of people don't really take the time to find things like that. But if you do in this game especially, it's really rewarding because you find out details about these characters that you would have never known. That's like with Carlos. For the longest time, I always thought, okay, so Deacon and Boozer held him down. And they burned off that tattoo on his back. But why? Because not one of them ever really says it. And you always get this feeling of, okay, well, Deacon and Boozer hate him. But it once again begs the question, why? Because they never really talk about it to anybody, not even to each other. But then when you find that collectible that shows Carlos and when he was with the MC, they're... You can actually find out about how he killed somebody, and that's what caused him to get kicked out of the MC. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, it's it's not one of those things where we all know two rights, two wrongs, excuse me, don't make a right. But at the same time, when you think about it, what Deacon and Boozer did was bad, but ultimately Jesse knew what he was getting himself into. He knew that by killing somebody. That's what would be what happened. And then when they kicked him out, he was just so hell-bent on getting revenge that that didn't really even seem to occur to him. Do you think he was in any way justified in his hatred of Deacon and Boozer? In a way, I would say, because I'm sure nobody wants to get held down and be burned like that. But even though he was kind of justified, he wasn't at the same time it's one of those things like um with obi-wan kenobi in star wars when he says well from a certain point of view that's how i always kind of looked at it because to carlos he wasn't the bad guy but to Negan, to uh i almost said negan because i'm actually it, it makes me think of negan from the walking dead because even though he was a bad guy he never thought he was right. and that's how carlos is because to him, being a leader, he has to be sure of himself and think, okay, well, I'm doing right by my people. These guys aren't. Yeah, he definitely has uh, main character syndrome where he's the, the main character and, and he's the protagonist. And uh, it's like, no, sorry, dude, you're actually the villain. Um, but again, I think that's something that makes a great villain is not someone who's just one dimensional, who just uh, doesn't have any kind of personality of their own beyond just what they want. I mean, Carlos, Jesse, the backstory is so interesting in the the mindset of someone who has gone through that, the mindset of someone who would kill a member of the club, uh, you know, knowing what the punishment would be, who then went through the punishment and then went through the apocalypse and became a cult leader based on that what they would see as personal trauma, uh, you know, and, and what well, undeniably is personal trauma just because they did something wrong and were punished for it doesn't mean it's not traumatic. Uh, and they created a fucking cult out of that, a theology, a theosophy, a, a way of thinking that then appealed to so many people who were also dealing with trauma. And I think that's, that's one of the key themes of the game is how do we deal with trauma? How do we respond to negative things in our life? You know, Deacon is going through the same thing with his grief and his rage over losing Sarah, not having any closure. 
you know, Boozer is a, another example of that, who, you know, he's lost his wife before the collapse, but he dealt with his trauma in a different way. He was allowed to deal with it in a different time. Iron Mike, you know, Lost Lake exists because of his trauma with what he did, his personal guilt, with what he did at Sherman's camp. Without that, you would not have the wonderful place of Lost Lake that everyone would want to be at if they were if they ended up in the world of Days Gone, you know, the most favorite camp. It's all about trauma. It definitely is. That's um right before we started recording here, I was actually reading the official novelization of Halloween Ends. I've seen the movie five times now, and I definitely get why a lot of people aren't big on it. Because I feel like the marketing was kind of wrong. They were saying one thing and the film was something completely different. But the reason I bring it up is because you can see how the character of Laurie Strode, how she went from how she was in the previous movies and she got to deal with her trauma. That's something that I don't think Carlos ever was able to do. Really, he's almost like Deacon and his other half. Because when you think about it, how you said Deacon never really got to go around his trauma. And I don't think Carlos ever really did either, because even though it was his fault, he didn't really seem to think that through. And then the trauma that it caused him, he never really got a chance to get out of it. And then when they got into this apocalypse, he just continued on with it. Yeah. One of the things that occurred to me, and I can't believe it took me a year and a half to think about this since I first played the game. This just occurred to me recently. The Rippers, as an antagonist for Deacon, their fucking name, R.I.P., Rest in Peace, is the antithesis of what Deacon wants to do with Sarah. He doesn't want to let her go and admit that she is dead in that way of, you know, R.I.P. Sarah. It's like he doesn't want to deal with that. And then you have a literal embodiment of that in the Rippers, that their fucking name and their symbols, the R.I.P., that's what he's fighting against. It's, it's very symbolic that he, for the first half of the game, up until he realizes Sarah is alive, he has been fighting against R.I.P. It's just, it's, when I thought about it, it's like, oh my God, that's so fucking obvious as the bigger theme of the game of, of what Deacon is trying to do, trying to avoid his grief and trying to avoid admitting that she's dead. And here are the rippers that are basically their symbology is shoving it in his face. There is definitely a lot of symbolism in this game. And how you said it took you a long time to realize that it that's like certain things that I've actually talked about with this recording. It, there's certain things that it wasn't until recently I would play the game and sit back and think, wait a minute, I never thought of it like that. And it's just certain things like when you start seeing it, you can see how everything fits together in, to form this one big story that you have going on. Yeah. And of course, the, the last component of the Rippers is Lisa and her storyline and how that kind of comes to an end uh, when she helps Deacon escape from Carlos and then right at the end of the game, you know, she shows back up because you haven't seen her 
for the whole second half of the game. She's not in the, the game at all. As far as you know, if you don't stick around post-credits, she's gone. She, you never see her again. But she shows up at Lost Lake, talks to Deacon. She's uh, now a drifter like him. She's like become little mini Deacon. Uh, you know, she doesn't want to be part of a camp. She just wants to turn in her bounties, you know, maybe buy some good weapons because her bike's a piece of shit and her weapons are shit. Uh, you know, ex she's exactly like Deacon at the beginning of the game. Um, you know, she she obviously gained something from her experience with the Rippers. What do you think? How do you think they affected her and her story? She was definitely traumatized by what happened. And really, there's a lot to look into there about how now she's setting off and she's going to be on her own. She before she was by herself, too. But then she ended up being around all these other people. And in the end, she ended up on her own again. She really has quite a story arc where you can see how vulnerable she is at the start. And because of everything that happened, it made her into a much stronger person. And really, that's kind of what happened to Deacon, too, because at the start, he was just so resentful and he didn't want to have to hear anything anybody else had to say. Unless they were saying, you know what, maybe maybe Sarah's still out there. All right. One question I always ask all my guests. If you found yourself in the world of Days Gone, how would you fare and what camp would you join? Realistically speaking, I'd say I probably wouldn't fare well. But if you take into account... Watching things like The Walking Dead and playing games like Days Gone and The Last of Us, hopefully that would play into it and you could potentially come out of it all right or at least live a lot longer. If I was to end up in a camp though, I'd probably not by choice because if there's something I've definitely learned, it's that you really have to be careful who you trust. That's one of the ongoing themes with... Days Gone, The Last of Us, The Walking Dead. Because like in the, the Walking Dead game, Clementine says about how at one time I used to trust people. Not so much now. Because the Freakers, you, you can't trust them. And really, when it comes to the people, depending on who you trust, that can be a really good or bad thing. Yeah. All right, a couple things before we wrap up. You can support the Days Gone podcast via buymeacoffee.com slash 8BitTerror. You can do a one-time contribution, or you can become a member. There are various levels of membership, each with their own perks and rewards. A membership starts for as little as $1 a month. You can check out all the details at buymeacoffee.com slash 8BitTerror. And I want to give a big shout out to my members. Miranda Satin, Basics of Pain, Captain Caffeine, Jay Stabby, Obscured by Ink, Hani Okashe, Anton G, Tom Moose, James Guan, Borislav247, Neanderthal Bard, WD Henderson, Dogbone, Passionflower Percussion, Zylock DMB, Bex, Andy, Catherine the Great, Dandy Denny07, and Colorful Soldiers. Also, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share so more people can find the show. CJ, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you for having me on, Claire. I've really been looking forward to it. You can email me your thoughts, comments, opinions, and counter-arguments at daysgonepod at gmail.com. You can also find me moderating the Days Gone subreddit. Thanks for listening. Weaver out. <laughs>